So I got to spend the last two days up the hill with about 50 guys from our church. And it is, they're still up there. They're probably taking communion right about now and are about to start heading down the mountain. Fabulous weekend. In the past, we've always grabbed people from outside of the church or um, Jeff or myself or, or Pastor Lee would teach through it. And we realized this year, quite honestly, God has gifted us with so many wonderful people. And if the goal of our church is to raise others up so they can be used in the giftings that God has given them, why wouldn't we do this at the men's retreat? So that's what we did. This weekend, we kind of gave the entire retreat weekend over to the men of Lighthouse. And I will tell you, it's probably my favorite one I've been a part of. And I think we're going to continue to do it moving forward. And it's funny, we were, I drove down the mountain around 6 a.m. this morning. And every time I start driving up the mountain, I kind of feel like one of those rockets that's like shaking as it's trying to leave the atmosphere. And every time I come back down the mountain... I'm like a, a feather kind of on the breeze, just drifting down, going, I don't want to leave. And so anyway, it was wonderful. And I look forward to um, the guys coming back and getting to share some of their stories. But uh, now let me actually just open us in prayer. I'm going to pray for their safety and traveling back and for our time. So if you'd bow your heads with me. Father God, I'm grateful for this time we get to be together as a family this morning. I'm grateful for those that are up the mountain right now being family praying with one another, sharing communion with one another. I pray you'd protect them on the road on the way back and that the seeds that have been planted in their hearts, the seeds of hope, the seeds of relationship would continue to take root and, and flourish. And God, I ask that you, Holy, uh, Holy Spirit, would you be present this morning? You know the, the notes that, that I've prepared. I, I invite you to kind of take us where you will. This is your morning. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. So we are going to continue our series through the book of James. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, you're more than welcome to take it. We, we buy a lot of them so that you can keep them for your own. If you've already taken three or four, you can bring one back, you know, or not. Pay it forward. We're going to dive into the last part of James chapter 1 today, but we need to remember that it's a letter. And so as with any letter, you can't just kind of start pulling it apart and think that it's all going to make perfect sense. The thoughts that James is going to say today really builds on what's come before. So I'm just going to really briefly remind us of what we've learned over the last two weeks, and then we'll continue working through James 1. So the book of James was written by Jesus' half-brother, his little brother James. But he was, James was also one of the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. And he's writing this letter to Jewish Christians around 45 AD, so maybe only 10, 15 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And he's writing to Jewish Christians who have been scattered away from the promised land, away from Jerusalem and Judea because of persecution. So these Jewish Christians find themselves living in foreign soil, surrounded by people who do not believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who do not consider Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. And he writes to them in part to encourage them in the midst of the trials that they find themselves going through, saying, just stay calm and carry on. You're going to get through this. And by the way, you can find solace and even a little bit of joy in the fact that what you're going through is actually producing endurance. He, set, he uses the word perseverance. 
And that perseverance, as it works in you, as you walk through these trials, is actually helping to make you more mature representatives of God in the place that you find yourself right now. He also recognizes, however, that there is this unavoidable pressure from the society that they find themselves into to conform. And so he says, hey, you're going to be tempted to try to become like the people around you, to become like the culture around you. Don't give in. Resist it because it's not from your father, God. And your father has called you to be change agents that shape culture, not to be shaped by the culture that you find yourself in. And then almost kind of, it's one of these verses that we typically read right over and keep going to kind of go, okay, what is he saying to me right here and now? There's this verse in verse 18. I'd like you to, to look at it. It's one that Jeff read last week, but it really leads into and will give us some handles for understanding what we're going to study today. So I want us to kind of pick this one apart. He says in verse 18 that he, meaning our Father God, chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, again, makes sense. I think I understand that. But I really want to parse what he's saying there. Take each part of that verse apart because it will help us understand what we're about to study moving forward. First off, we read here that he chose to give us birth. What does that mean? I mean, we're already alive. We're already here. Does that mean that he allowed us to live? What James is getting at is what he recognizes as the kind of state of humanity and the state of the world. God created us, male and female, to be his representatives, to be co-laborers, partners in caring for and cultivating his creation. But, as you know, those of you who have read Genesis chapter 3 know, that didn't stay that way for very long because as soon as Adam and Eve realized God, God didn't give us the knowledge of good and evil and, and, and so we're not fully like him. We feel a little bit deficient and that fruit supposedly can give it to us and they grabbed the fruit and they ate it in open disobedience to God's directives. Sin entered the world. And that sin did two things. First off, it drove a wedge between humanity and our God. Secondly, it thwarted our ability to perfectly join him in the caring for his creation. His intent that we would, as his image bearers, be his representatives was frustrated because of that choice. However, James is pointing to the fact that because his big brother Jesus not only died on the cross but rose from the grave, that state of humanity that all of us are born into this world physically alive but spiritually dead, does not have to get the last word. That that doesn't have to be our lot in life, although that is the reality, that is the human condition for every man, woman, and child that has ever been born. We are born spiritually, I'm sorry, physically alive, spiritually dead. James says that doesn't have to be, though, because God, in his graciousness, chose to give us birth chose to give us a, a renewal of life. And he's talking spiritual birth there. And how did he do it? He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Now, what is the word of truth? Well, on the one hand, it's the scripture that we hold in our hands. It's the teaching of our Father God. And more specifically for James and for these early Christ followers, it's the good news that they had embraced, that Jesus 
was the Son of God, that he died in our place, that he rose from the dead, and that we can be reconciled. But really, that word of truth, I want us to read with a a, a lowercase w, because that word of truth is merely a, a signpost pointing us to the real source of life. We're not saved by the Bible. We're saved by Jesus Christ and him crucified. We are saved by faith in him, not in Scripture. Although this is radically important because this points us to him. And so the word of truth points us to the word capital of truth. You guys have read John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the what? Was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He goes on in that to say that the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, we have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus ultimately is the word of truth. And through him in our lives, we are given new spiritual life. And that is good news, but it's not just good news for us. It's good news for every man, woman, and child on this planet, many of whom are still spiritually dead. Because through that, God has a purpose. By giving us a spiritual rebirth, not only are we reconciled to God, so the wedge that's been driven between us is removed and we can come back into communion with him as we were created to be, but the purpose for which we were created in the very beginning, to be his ambassadors of hope, his representatives, that is renewed as well. And James basically says, listen, you are the first fruits of God's act of redeeming humanity. I I love about a a decade later, when Paul writes his second letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says virtually the same thing. He says, in Christ we're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All of this is from God who's reconciling the world to himself. And by the way, he has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. It's as if God himself were making the appeal to the world to be reconciled, and he's doing it through us who have been reborn. And that's the heart of what he's getting at. And so James says, listen, I know that it's trying what you're walking through right now. And I know it's tempting to become like society around you, but I want you to know That God has a purpose even in where you're at. He's using you in these foreign lands to begin to terraform it and shape culture rather than allowing culture to shape you. And from there, I want us to understand that's the foundation into which he now goes into what he's going to talk about. Because everything he's going to say now is written to men and women who identify themselves as Christ followers. Who identify themselves as renewed, spiritually reborn ambassadors of hope the first fruits of a world that will be redeemed from the brokenness that sin has wrought. And so he says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Pay attention. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all the moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at their face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but actually doing it, that person will be blessed in all that they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, they deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. But religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Somebody said that James is the... um, is the Proverbs of the New Testament, that there's just thoughts that are just, he just keeps kind of hammering at you. And somebody has said that Proverbs is like God's Twitter account, right? Just kind of like throwing out thoughts. And so sometimes it can feel a little bit disjointed. Sometimes it can feel like there's a lot of um, just things that almost feel like they don't necessarily flow together. And yet, as we begin to unpack this and recognize, he's writing to a people who find themselves in a foreign land, who are agents of restoration to make things right. And I want to I dwell on that word right for just a moment. Because we throw the word righteous around, right? Bill and Ted's excellent. Righteous. What a, seriously? <laughs> if the guys were here, they'd be at least giggling. All right, but so we throw that word around. But the word righteous really just means to make things right or just Justice is another word that's kind of tied in there with righteousness. It is making things right. And that's God's desire is to make the world right according to his heart, to undo the ravages of sin. And because we have been spiritually reborn, James is saying, you have the opportunity to join God in that endeavor. But understand that as you find yourself In a society that does not bend a knee to Jesus Christ, does not embrace the same moral truths that have been implanted in your hearts. They have not been convicted of the same things that you are convicted. Know that there are going to be moments where you're going to look at the world and go, that's not right. And that desire to make the world right will first cause us to want to tell people how they should be different to control them in some ways. And ultimately, our frustration at seeing the brokenness of this world will often lead to anger. And what James warns us, warns believers living in a foreign land surrounded by people who don't view the the world the same way they do, through the same moral filter, he says, listen, guys, you need to be real careful. Not to, to be quick to listen Slow to speak and slow to become angry because the human anger does not bring about the righteousness of God or the righteousness that our Father God desires. So be careful. Uh, Somebody once said, you know, you got two ears and one mouth, so you should listen twice as much as you talk. Um, but, But could you just imagine for a moment what would happen in our society if we actually lived this out? How different would it be going on social media if rather than just talking over one another and kind of telling one another how we're wrong or unfriending one another because we get angry that somebody has a different view 
or voted for somebody different than we did? How different would it be if we actually came, moved towards one another and probably not hashed our stuff out online? That's not the best place to do it. But moved towards one another and actually sought to understand one another's heart. How different would our, our political system be, our government be, if people on both sides of the aisle actually stopped to listen to one another and to understand where the other was coming from. Not in the sense of going, you are bigoted and you are short-sighted and that makes no sense, but actually sought to understand and come to some sort of consensus. We might actually get some stuff done without making half of the country angry every moment. Think of how different our city would be, our neighborhoods would be, if when we had a conflict with our neighbor, they did something, maybe they're playing music too loudly, or they're doing something in their house that we don't like, what if rather than calling the cops or complaining to the city or complaining about them on Nextdoor or other social media platforms, what if we actually talked to our neighbors and rather than just telling them what we don't like about them, actually listened to them? Well, I'll tell you what that would look like. It's not my story, it's Jeff's. Uh, we have a neighbor, and I'm not going to say whom, but we have a neighbor who purchased a house next to a church and then wishes that, they did, that the church didn't exist because the church is irritating that it's here and it's loud and, and there's people here all around the week. And it's like, well, uh, you knew where you bought, right? And there's this part of me that after seven years of having been a pastor here and trying to move towards this individual, I will admit I will confess, my heart's gotten a little hardened towards this person. Really, isn't that what anger is? Is a hardening of our heart, a defensiveness where we stop listening? And I just kind of stopped listening to many of the complaints because they were myriad. This particular individual knows the agreements that we have with the city better than I do. So when we replace two trees with one, I'm not aware of the fact that we by law have to have two trees up. That person is, and so they complain to the city, and immediately I've got somebody from the city here going, hey, by the way, you need to replace that. Oh, and by the way, these three feet inside the fence, that has to be torn up, and you have to put down either concrete or, or dirt because you can't have that rubberized surface. It's like, what? They're like, yeah, your neighbors complain. It's like, oh, Jesus bless them. <laughs> so I confess, my heart's gotten a little hardened. Jeff, been here almost a year thankfully has not. So the other day, about a week ago, he's walking across the street and this particular individual grabs a hold of him and says, I'm really angry at you guys. You do not know how to be good neighbors. I thought you were Christ followers. You don't act like Christians. She starts going off. And Jeff, in the middle of that, could very easily get defensive, could very quickly start speaking over this individual, could very quickly become angry and defensive. He chooses not to, thankfully. And he's like, hi, I'm Jeff. How are you? My name's Pastor Jeff. What's your name? And, and all that. 45 minutes later, he hears this individual's heart. And he comes up into the office and he says, hey, as I was listening to this person, I realized that there are some things that we did here in order to improve our church that have actually impinged upon this person. For one, we put some new lights on our building that give more light at night. They're LEDs, so they don't take as much energy, and they actually offer some good light coverage in the street. But this person sleeps at the front of their house, and that light actually is now shining onto their house, and they don't appreciate that. And I wonder if there's something we could do. 
Oh. That was one of, of many things that we talked about. Another thing was, hey, we have this dead tree in the front of our church that we replaced a year ago, and it was very expensive to replace it, but it died because, you know, we planted it. If Diane had done it, it would have flourished, <laughs> but she didn't. So um, maybe we could replace it. The next day, didn't wait on it, didn't just go, hey, let's take it to committee. Je- the next day, Jeff activates on it. I love my brother. The next day, he calls up our electrician. Hey, is there any way that we can make the light less bright? He goes, oh, I could pull off the kind of screen around it. I could spray paint on the inside so it just has the spotlight coming down and won't wash into the street and and hit other people's homes. Do it. Calls up Mike Jones. Hey, do you have any access to trees? Yeah, I got a a really cool peppermint tree. Bring it. We're going to buy it. We're going to put it in. They put it in that day with Byron and Mike's help. Got it done. Addressed two of several things, but it's like, hey, we're making steps towards being a good neighbor. That is listening, being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Now, could Jeff have responded differently? You better believe it. I'm so grateful he was the one who had that conversation. God's working on my heart. Know that. Because it would have been very easy to just go... You're never happy with anything we do. Do you see the way we're trying to make improvements? And that benefits everybody. And just written everything off as they're just going to keep complaining. And yet that would not, to James's point, that would not bring about the righteousness that God desires. And at the end of the day, my prayer is not that we'd have the most beautiful facility. My prayer is that our neighbors would come to know Jesus Christ. And I believe that Jeff's actions planted seeds. Now, they may not be able to overcome a heart that is hardened towards us, but it's worth it. It's worth doing the right thing, and I'm really proud of him for having done that. So going back to James's point, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone, as, as representatives of God, as agents of restoration in a broken, hurtful world, should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger doesn't produce the rightness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all the moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent. And by the way, it's prevalent out there, but it's also prevalent in here. Because although we're new creations, the old is gone, the new has come, our flesh dies hard. And the truth of the matter is, although there is a time for righteous anger, there are things that make God angry. More often than not, it's when people who are powerless are taken advantage of. When children are treated with contempt and abuse. When people use their positions of authority to domineer and demean. That, or or, or when... When what is holy is treated as unholy, like the time that Jesus entered into the temple courts and he realized that his father's temple that was to be used for worship was being used to take advantage of people through the money lenders and the selling of the the animals for sacrifice and they were price gouging. And he became angry and he responded in that anger. That was a righteous anger. There's a time for anger, but more often than not, if we're honest, the anger that we feel at the unrightness of our society has more to do with our own brokenness, selfishness, self-centeredness, insecurity. I want my way and I can't get my way and I get angry and I harden my heart towards this person because they're the impediment. They're getting between me and what I want. 
whether that be a neighbor, somebody from a different political opinion, our children, our spouse, somebody at work, whatever it happens to be. And we harden our heart towards them. And he says, get rid of that moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word that's been planted in you, which can save you. That word that points us back towards Jesus Christ and says, I will submit my life to you because you're more than just my savior. You're my Lord. So have your way with me. But as he'll go on to say now, it's not enough simply to listen or to just read the word. We actually have to let this take root in our lives so that it can begin to bear fruit in our lives. So he says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Verse 23, anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. It's not enough just to hear the word of God, to hear Jesus' directives. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? If you're really my disciples, then you'll do what I say. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you're really my disciples, then you will obey my teaching, and then you will know what is truth, and that truth will set you free. So, not, so merely listening to the word doesn't actually produce the sort of heart transformation, life transformation, the sort of fruit that we're after, that God is after, that sort of righteousness in our own life that then percolates into the world around us. I, I was just teaching a class over at Vanguard. Uh, I just finished teaching it. And this, is, this has never happened before, but one of the students in my class showed up every single night, took notes, and never once turned in an assignment. I come to the end of the class, and, I, and I'm, I'm going, um, were you planning on participating? He's like, oh, man, work and life, and I, I had writer's block, and I didn't want to turn in something that wasn't. I go, you've given me nothing. So I, I can't give you credit. And I know in his mind he thought he was one of my students, but he was just auditing the class. And in the same way, James is saying, listen, do not audit your faith. Don't simply listen to the word and think that that's going to produce any sort of life transformation. Because information without action doesn't lead to transformation. Do what it says. Let that word take root in your heart and begin to bear fruit in your life. And then he uses this analogy of a mirror. He says the word of God is like a mirror that we look into. But the difference between a mirror and the word of God is that whereas a mirror only exposes and reveals the surface, the word of God cuts to the heart. The writer of Hebrews put it this way. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword and it penetrates, separating joint and marrow, soul and something else and I should, I should read it, huh? Do we have it up there? Can we put it up there? Joint and marrow, exposing the motives and, and the rationale behind what we do. That's the heart of what the Word of God does, is it exposes our hearts. And then in that moment, so while we read Scripture, it's reading us, it's exposing us, it's showing us who we are and how, how we do life somewhat conflicts 
with the heart of our God. How what's in our hearts is not in alignment with his. And then at that moment, we have a choice. It's kind of like when you go to the doctor, right? And he takes the, the mouth x-ray and he says, well, you got a choice. You can drill and fill. I know it's not comfortable and it might be a little costly. But the alternative is you can gum it, right? And you probably don't want to pull them out. So Paul is saying, put it into action because if you don't, if you just hear it and you ignore it, then you steal the life-transformative power of the word from it. It may be living and active, but it cannot transform your life if you're not willing to act on it. But if you are, verse 25, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in all they do. Love that term, the perfect law that gives freedom. He's going to return to that in the next chapter. But what is he talking about? Is this the perfect law that gives freedom, all of it? I think he's talking about something a little bit more specific than that. Because remember, his big brother, Jesus, when he had been asked, what's the most important law? He said, The most important commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second commandment is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said, listen, all of the law and all of the prophets hang upon those two commands. Love God, love one another. And so I would suggest that when you read the perfect law that gives freedom, understand that to mean the law of love. Is what I'm doing loving to my Father God, does it honor him as his son, as his daughter, as his representative in this world? Secondly, is what I am doing loving to others? And if you can answer honestly yes, then you have become a law unto yourself. The law of love is your directive. It is the heart and is what he was trying to redeem God's heart from because they had turned the law into this rigid structure, into this ladder that they tried to climb to attain their righteousness. And he's going, guys, you've missed the heart of God completely because you've used laws to hold people in place and to keep them down rather than setting them free. Is that love? Is that the heart of our father? And from here, Do you remember how Jesus was talking um, to his disciples? He said, listen, guys, you'll know a tree by its fruit, right? You can know the rootstock by the fruit that it produces. Just look at the fruit. Oh, that's a pear tree. Oh, that's a banana tree. Strawberry bush? That doesn't work. Lemon tree, right? (laughs) In the same way, you will recognize a person by the fruit their lives produce. And James now goes into two pictures of the kind of fruit that our lives produce. One of them is rotten fruit. It's bad fruit. It's fruit that kind of causes you to question, am I really practicing the law that brings freedom, the law of love? The second fruit is is the kind of fruit that he calls perfect, that God embraces as good and perfect and, and pure So let's take a look at these two things. And by the way, he's about to use the word religion. I don't want you to get off on this because the word religion is simply referring to the external evidence of our faith. It's the external 
worship. Right? It's our external acts of worship. So when we stand up and we're singing and we're clapping, that's worship because it's something we're doing externally. But it reveals what's really in our heart, hopefully. When you, when you put something into the offering, that is an external action of declaring an internal decision. God, I trust you more than my stuff. When you stop and you help somebody, that's an external action of saying, God, you've loved me, so I want to love others. I want to be a conduit of that love. Does that make sense? That's what he's getting at when he talks about religion. It's just another word for the fruit that's produced by the faith that we have in our life. And so, two types of fruit, one bad, one good. Verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious, yet don't keep a tight rein on their tongues, they deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. He's going to dwell a whole lot on that particular subject of the words we speak and the way that they can either build up or tear down, give life or steal it. Some of you have been on the receiving end of that. Some of you unwittingly have been on the giving end of that. And he's going to deal with that in a great deal in chapter 3. So we're not going to dwell on it this morning. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. Instead, let's look at verse 27. That's the rotten fruit. If you notice that the words of your mouth, you don't have any control over it, and you just kind of say whatever comes out of it, and it's ugly, and it's biting, your faith is suspect. But religion, the external fruit that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, why is that religion that he considers to be pure and spotless? Why is that external fruit of our lives, of our faith, that he says, that's the stuff I'm after? Because remember what we started talking about at the beginning of our conversation today. We were created not only to be in relationship with him, but to be his co-laborers, his partners, in bringing about his will in creation. And because sin has entered in, we now become partners with him in undoing the ravages of the brokenness of this world. And it's, it's plenty. There's lots and lots of brokenness. We become partners with him in making the world right. Well, you don't have to look very far. All throughout Scripture, we get glimpses of God's heart, what really breaks his heart. Because as his representatives, as his image bearers, as his ambassadors... The goal is that our heart would break for the same things that break his heart. And that we would not be shaped by the culture around us, but rather we would be those who are used as tools in his hand to shape our culture. And so here's just a few of many, many passages that speak to God's heart and what breaks his heart. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16 through 19. Circumcise your hearts. It's a way of saying clean your hearts out. And don't be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the foreigner residing amongst you. But we've got to build these walls, keep them out. We've got to protect the jobs for us. He, he cares for the foreigners residing amongst you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. That's the reason why. Look at how much you've been given grace. Did you... Build these homes that you live in? Did you, you know, plow those fields? No, you were brought into a land that was not your own, and he cleared it out for you. He gifted it to you. Care for those who are not in a position of strength and authority in your land. 
Secondly, Micah 6.8. He, our Father God, has shown you, O mortal, what's good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, righteously, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what he's after. Last one. Isaiah 1, verse 16 and 17. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong and learn to do what is right. Seek justice. Another way of saying, seek to do what's right. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. In each of these verses, each of these passages that I've just read, we see both aspects of what he calls pure and undefiled religion. On the one hand, it's protecting yourself from being shaped by the culture around you, letting the pollution of a sinful, broken world seep in and make you in its image. Because you've been called instead to be an image bearer, shaping culture. Secondly, it's that the things that break your heart are the same things that break his heart, that you move towards those individuals who feel completely alone. That you stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. That you speak up for those who have no voice of their own. That you, you're, you, you care for those who need help. And for, in, in James's case, the most obvious people in a culture where adult males held all of the power, it was widows who don't have a male counterpart to care for them and orphans children who cannot you know care for themselves in a culture that just looked at them as refuse because in that culture those children were just thrown away and they were treated as garbage now we can look around our culture and we can begin to add things to that list and even in that culture there were others that you might add to that list but you see the heart of our father is to care for those who can't care for themselves, to move towards those who feel alone and powerless, and to use what God has entrusted to us to bring to bear on their lives so that they, their life is not only better, but ultimately that they would come to call our Father, our, you know, their Father, that they would put their faith in Him, that Jesus would become not only their Savior, but their Lord. Does this make sense? Okay, now I understand that this is a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. Anytime that we encounter James and we actually try to do justice to the, the passage and how much information is in there, it feels overwhelming. So just as I did a couple weeks ago with Jeannie, I want to invite uh, somebody up to share and to f- put some flesh on this. So I'm going to invite my friend Sarah to come up here. And Sarah has been a part of our church for the last year. But um, she's been a part of my family, my, uh, my extended family for like the last decade. She knew me before we had our kids. We, we were next door neighbors. Um, and I know that verse 27 in particular has been just absolutely rocking your heart. So I'm just going to, why don't you just share what God has been saying to you? Uh, so as, as Eric shared, um, this last verse of James 1 has had a couple years to sit with me and take root in my life in some really specific ways. Wouldn't necessarily call it my life first, but it's one of them. Um, as a little bit of context, since you guys haven't gotten to know me very well yet, um, I, I grew up in an incredible home. Uh, my 
parents are celebrating 40 years of marriage this summer. Uh, they are ridiculously in love with each other. It's kind of cute. Sometimes embarrassing, mostly cute. Um, and it's a home that followed Jesus from day one, which I'm super grateful to have received that legacy. And I know that uh, as I look at the people that I know, the people in this room, I know that that is probably not the experience of all of us. We don't have that story. And I know that as I look at our world, that's definitely not the common story. And that breaks my heart. I don't, I don't want to be unusual in that. That shouldn't be an unusual thing to grow up in a home that feels safe and nurturing. I got a chance to, um, grow up in incredible safety and learn to love God and love, and love others in that. And, um, over the past couple of years, God has really been speaking that word home over me, uh, in the sense of inviting me into creating it in a variety of different ways. And I have come to realize that for me, that word captures, um, basically a sense of shalom of the wholeness that God has designed us for, but that we've largely lost, um, of that sense of knowing where we belong, knowing Is that still turned on? Dag, nab it. All right, here. Want me to just talk really loudly? No. Oh, boy. There you go. I know. Britney Spears. All right. I'm going to hand that to you. How's that? Okay. <laughs> um, yes? Good? Okay. My hair looks probably really weird right now, but I'm not going to be self-conscious about that. Uh, so... Um, when I was uh, still in my 20s, I was working over at Vanguard University, and I led a student team on a missions trip to Latvia. Uh, it's uh, just to the west of Russia on the Baltic Sea. I had to look at a map when I was told where I was going. I had no idea. And um, we, were, we were spending two weeks doing kids' camps over there. And what we experienced is we encountered that culture. The, the communities we were serving in were low income. But more than that, um, if any of you have experienced countries that were under the Iron Curtain, there's a general sense among the adult population of, of just... Hopelessness isn't a big enough word in some ways, just a, a sense of there's, there's nothing for us. There's nothing coming up that we have to look forward to. There's no joy left. And that has an incredible impact on the kids in that culture. And the kids we were serving, um, they weren't orphans, but they, they had experienced in, incredible neglect in their lives. And so, you know, we start loving on them, as we do, and they lit up. And that broke me, <laughs> because that shouldn't be unusual. That shouldn't be something that they, oh my gosh, I have this for a week. So uh, we were driving across the country uh, midweek or mid, mid trip to get to our second camp, and my team was passed out from exhaustion in the back of the van because, of course, we were getting three, three hours of sleep a night because it's a mission strip. And so God and I were having some quiet time. And this verse, James 1:27, God exploded it in my mind. I cannot describe the, the explosion. It was intense. It worked itself into every corner of my mind and my heart. And I can't explain it uh, apart from the Spirit's work in my heart in that moment, but I knew with absolute confidence that I was called to adoption. And at this point in my life, I didn't know if I wanted to be a mom yet <laughs> at all. And, but that 
that took permanent root in me and it has not budged. So fast forward, uh, next January, I'm starting the process to become a foster parent with the, I, the intention of adopting two girls out of the foster care system. And I'm, I'm, it's fun game to say this because, hi, you're my church, and I am super thankful that I'm going to be part of a community that will pray me through this, that will walk through this with me. I'm excited that your kids are going to become my daughter's friends. That means so much to me. Um, and just the, the, the fact that you guys are going to be part of creating home for my girls with me, um, my girls who probably either have, have a sense that they've lost their home or they never knew home to begin with. Um, listening to what Eric's been sharing about uh, James 1, that idea that God has called us and has designed us, created us to be the stewards of his creation. He gave it to us to care for. Um, Paul calls us ministers of reconciliation. And that sense of making things right, of that calling to make things right, um, that resides in each one of us and we each have a different story that we connect with in that space. For me, it's, I know I'm called to change the story for two or more orphans in Orange County, and there are 3,100 kids currently in foster care in Orange County. And that's a big number, but it's also like, we could take care of that. That's not an, an insurmountable number of kids we could take care of. Uh, for many in this church, I know that it's a call to care for the homeless, and that also breaks my heart, that sense that there are people who have lost their home and who need to have somebody guide them back toward home and or maybe create home for them for the first time. Uh, for others, it may be being in relationship with someone who's elderly who otherwise would feel forgotten or alone, and that is a scary place to be toward the end of life. Uh, for all of us who have families, it's raising our kids well. It's caring for parents and relatives. So whatever that area is for you, um, that's our neighbor. And... I'm encouraged by the, the idea that everything we do is to pull them toward the heart of their Father God, that that is a, a driving purpose um, and that he will be the biggest part, and we partner with him in that, but of restoring that sense of rightness and justice and home. Um, guys, that's our work, and that's incredible, and I can't imagine better work to be a part of. Thank you, Stan. Stay up here. Hey, hey, would you, um, I'm just going to invite you to extend a hand towards Sarah, but also I want you to recognize I'm praying for you and us and myself as well in this. Father God, I am grateful that you use imperfect vessels like us, jars of clay to pour out your perfect love. And we know that we do it imperfectly sometimes that what comes out of the vessel tastes a little bit too much like the vessel. But I thank you that you give us another chance to be your agents of restoration, to be your co-workers in setting this world right. And that begins with uh, submitting our lives to you and then saying, God, everything you've given me, my time, my talents, and my treasures, it's all yours Use it as you wish, because I recognize, Father, that we have not been blessed to hoard our blessing, but we've been blessed in order to be a blessing so that others will come to know the hope we found in you and ultimately call you, Jesus, their Savior and their Lord. And, Father God, that they would consider themselves your children and they'd be part of our family. And, God, I am grateful for the ways you're breaking my sister's heart. 
for these two little girls. We don't know their names. We don't know their story. But you know them intimately. And they're probably walking around right now or crawling around. And in life, this is all they know. And I pray, Father, that in your timing and in your way, you would unite Sarah with her children. I pray for others in this room who are hearing her testimony and saying, man, I have been ignoring that for a long time because it's scary. And this system is broken, and man, it costs a lot of money. And ah, and all of the excuses we get. Father, if there are things you're calling us to do, we recognize that you're bigger than a system. You're bigger than brokenness. And we pray that you would give us the courage to follow you, to even voice to others and to ourselves what it is that we hear you saying to us. And then as a community, we pray, Father, that we uh, would set a, a solid foundation in love here, that all of us can do the things you've called us to do so that you are glorified and your family grows. I pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. I don't know where this hits you today. I don't know if for you, you just go, that's in- interesting information. I hope it won't just be information. But for some of you, it may be like admitting to yourself and to others for the first time, this is what I feel like God has been breaking my heart for, and I don't know what the path ahead looks like. But I invite you. If you just want to pray, and we will join you in praying that God opens those doors. But now let's, let's respond in worship.